0: Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Brisbane podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us in our series, First Peter, hope in the midst of suffering. In this series, we will discover how to experience hope within suffering through learning how to embrace love, submission and identity in the midst of challenges as we follow the example of Christ. We pray that this message is a blessing.
1: So today we're reading from From two passages from the Bible. The first one is from 1 Peter 2 verses 12 to 21. And it says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honour the King. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering, because he is conscious of God. But how is it, to your credit, if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And our next reading is from 1 Peter 3, verses 1 to 7. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over with words by the behavior of their wives, when they see purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give away to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate As you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Jemima. Can we just thank Jemima for that? Awesome. I texted her this morning, and she read the passage, and I think she was like, oh, thanks for the hospital pass. Um, (laughs) This is going to be interesting, friends, and uh, if we've not met, my name's Alex, and it's an absolute joy just to spend the afternoon worshiping God together. Uh, Two quick things from me, then we're going to jump in, and I'm actually really excited, if I'm deeply honest, Um, but two quick things from me. Uh, Tomorrow morning, real quick, uh, men's prayer is on. just want to encourage you, if you're a male in the room, join us behind me, 6 6, a.m., 6.10 a.m. Josh Phillips, one of our elders, will be leading, and... uh, one of our um, trusted members here at New Life Brisbane, Matthew Burt, will be brewing some filter coffee. Uh, And so you will enjoy that, uh, absolutely. Second thing from me is, I've actually forgotten. Oh, no, here it is. Great. Um, (laughs) Yesterday, we had another information day for our drum roll. Are we ready? Let's do this. I've never done this in church. This is awesome. Uh, New Life Morton Church Plan. Come on. (laughs) And uh, I just want to let you know, uh, in two weeks time they're holding their first Sunday gathering, is this right? One week time. Sweet, wow, this, this train is a coming. And so we just wanna say, this is not something Dylan and Casey are doing by themselves. This is a New Life Brisbane thing and a New Life family thing. And so just wanna say, can you let them know, if you feel it on your heart to join them in this, I think there's five people I know are from New Life Brisbane going alongside Casey, Dylan, Jonah, and Elsie already. And we would just love to bless them as they go so they can plant with strength and we continue to do what we do in the city here all together as one big New Life church family. How good. Let me pray, and then we're going to jump into the scriptures together. Father, in many ways, today is a day to celebrate earthly fathers, and God, we do that. With those who are men in our midst, just feel so buoyed by your spirit, so encouraged by you, Heavenly Father. Father. Yet, Lord, we acknowledge you are the true dad all of our hearts need. And so, Father, right now we sit with you and we long to hear from this, your love letter, the Bible. So as we read these words, Father, help us interpret them in context in a way that illuminates it to us and readies us to follow your will, for it's in Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, amen. I said before this is going to be interesting, right? Um, I don't know what came up in your heart as you heard this passage. Uh, this is one of a number of passages within the New Testament where similar things get said in a similar way. And sort of the takeaway points are there's human institutions to which God's people are called to submit. And the question is why, how, and he sort of qualifies there. Cheers, guys. And uh, the best analogy I can come up with for this Actually, before I even get there, let me just name some of the ways we could have experienced this passage to come across. I think one of the ways some people experience this passage, and passages like it in the New Testament, um would be to angrily reject it. And you hear passages like this that talk about submission and male authority and hierarchicalism, and you think, goodness me, we need to reject this kind of thing because this is the patriarchy, down with patriarchy hashtag. That's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is to take this text and pull it out of its context and plant it into our modern world and to just apply it in a way that would seek to do no justice to the context in which it was written and provide no light and illumination for how we live it in our own. Lives And the problem with both of those things is what you might call transplanting, right? And when you transplant a biblical text, you take a biblical text, you use it as a proof text for really what your own agenda is, whether to devalue God's word or to pretend your own cultural assumptions in the modern world are God's word, and both times you transplant the Bible, do it a disservice, and make up God in your own image along the way. So here's my heart for us as we step into this text, that we listen to it. If we do not sit under the scriptures, we actually rob ourselves of intimacy with God because we start to create a God in our own image, pull away scriptures along the way, and shape something that would resonate more with our cultural assumptions than sit under that which God has revealed. But at the same time, let's not be so quick to take this text and assume that it means what at face value it appears to mean. Let's do justice to the way that God's word is both inspired by him, but strangely human all at the same time. So we're gonna do a bit of hard work today, and if I could use one word to summarize where we're going, I'm gonna teach, is that okay? We're gonna teach, awesome. The way that I would give an analogy to the kind of experience that Peter is talking about and the context that he assumes when he writes this passage comes in the title of a song released in 1999. Anyone know the artist Ice Cube? Yeah, come on. Now he wrote a song called Don't Hate the Player, Hate the game. And I used to have no idea what this meant, but as I was researching this passage this week and understanding the cultural assumptions behind the text, I was like, I think something of what Ice Cube was saying, I think about basketball, might resonate with what Peter is saying about the household. How? Don't hate the player, hate the game, means that sometimes we find ourselves in life in games, the rules of which we didn't choose, the length of which we can't change, and we need to know how to survive in the meantime. And when Peter writes this letter, he's writing to Christians who live in a world they didn't choose, with rules they can't change, and the question they're asking is, how do I witness in that kind of world? That's the key question behind this passage. It's why Peter says again and again in this text, do this for the Lord's sake, or if you want to make a good impression on your husband so he might be one with more than the gospel, more than the words to meet Jesus himself, live this kind of life. The key assumption behind this text is that we need to make a witness in the world, but the world we live in is brutal. Caesar's at the top and we've got no rights, no privileges. It's not the modern Western liberal democracy that we've got the privilege of here in Brisbane city told you it was going to be interesting. And so, to give more context behind this passage, I want to borrow from uh, something from the 4th century BC written by a guy named Aristotle. Now, to understand these passages as they come up in the New Testament, there's something that's called household codes. And household codes were sort of the bread and butter through which the Greco-Roman Empire organized itself. Everyone wanted to know, how do we organise family life and how do we organise civil life? And so there was these philosophers, most notably Aristotle, who wrote in the 4th century BC, which is 400 years before Christ, about 460 years before Peter's writing this letter, and he put to paper with pen the way in which to make the Greco-Roman world flourish under Caesar's rule, the way in which it should be set up. I'm going to read these words. This is Aristotle, not Paul, not Peter, not Peter. Definitely not Jesus Christ. Here are his words. He says, Of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of a master over slaves, another of a father, and the third of a husband. A husband and father rules over wife and children, both free, but the rule differs. The rule over his children being a royal, over his wife being a constitutional rule. If you're like, I don't know what the difference is, me too, we'll move on. For although there may be exceptions to the order of nature, the male is by nature fitter for command than the female. The free man rules over the slave after another manner from that in which the male rules over the female or the man over the child. The slave has no deliberative faculty at all. The woman has but is without authority and the child has but is immature. Interesting. Interesting. Another Roman writer and historian actually pens some other words to sort of make the case that the way in which the household is organized from the ground up actually secures, therefore, the more macro lens way in which the entire empire was organized. And what you get this picture of, let me read the words and there'll be a picture on the screen behind me that I think summarizes it. Yes, I went to town with my PowerPoint this week. Cicero said this, the first bond of union is that between husband and wife. The next, that between parents and children. Then we find one home with everything in common, and this is the foundation of civil government. What's he saying? Well, look at the screen. He's saying that the rule of the emperor, in this case Nero, seated in the power of Rome, for that to be secured, we need to establish leadership in hierarchical fashion all the way down to the least of these. In the Roman Empire, they were called slaves. Now, what's interesting about this, note two things. Everything is organized from the top down, in a way that privileges male, which is in a sense, literally this is a picture of patriarchy behind me, privileges male leadership and male masculinity, perpetuates their rule and their power, and then on top of that, means that the way we do this in the home is not just oh how I relate to my wife, this is like civil disobedience if you ruin this order this will overthrow and create a revolution in the empire. And so any change, any whiff of heresy, any any sort of sense that there's people that are coming into the empire with some kind of different structure, some kind of different morality, some kind of different picture about what leadership could look like and is and is inspired by. Gosh, that's a scary thought. And so here you've got Christians in the first century. Five, 10, 20 years previously had met the risen Lord Jesus. And you've got slaves, and you've got women, and you've got children, and you've got these whole host of people. And the cultural ether within which they swim is all these very defined, static roles that they play in society, subservient to men, with Nero or Caesar at the top. And the question for Christians with this new Lord, and this new way of life, and this new social dynamic within which all people are valued equally, how do we work that out? Is that our primary goal? That's the context that Peter writes in. Now we're just gonna walk through literally all the heavy hitters here and come up with something that makes some bit of a sense, but let me remind you of the key question and we'll read a bit of text. How do we witness in a social structure, is what they're asking, that we didn't choose and can't immediately change? How do we witness? So first bit of text. I'm just gonna put this here, I'll reference it later. First bit of text, bit of context behind this. At the time, Nero is ruling. He's ruled for a number of years right now. And Christians are beginning to come into a whole host of persecution. And the Christian religion, particularly in Rome and then afterwards abroad, is being highly persecuted. Christians are losing their lives. And in July of 64 AD, a fire ran through and tore apart Rome. And at the time, Nero needed a scapegoat. See, here's what Nero wanted to do. Nero wanted to clear land so he could set up a new palace, which is sort of like a divine shrine to himself. And in putting the fire in place, we actually don't know who did it historically, but what Nero did is he used Christians as a scapegoat. And Nero said, actually, it was the Christians who did it, and we've actually got Roman historians who document the way in which Christians were blamed for this. Because of this, Christians are sent out of the city, evacuated from Rome, and as people find themselves in Roman colonies and outskirts all around the empire, particularly in modern, what we now call modern-day Turkey, which is the place to whom Peter is writing, they're persecuted, fearing for their lives, and so then the question becomes, gosh, what do we do? And more acutely than that, they probably find themselves around dinner tables. Slave, free, male, female, Jew, Gentile, all now with Jesus as Lord, and they're asking these questions. So, Josh, I'm a slave, and Jesus is my Lord, and he's a bit different from Nero. How do I, how, how do I relate to my master? My, my master actually beats me, and what do, I, what do I do? Or there's a, a wife and she's come to faith and her husband hasn't and, and she says, okay, I, I know that if I change my religious persuasion from polytheistic Roman into monotheistic Christian, I, I know that actually I could be highly penalized uh, in the culture within which I sit. How do I navigate this? Because I've met this guy who's wooed my heart. His name's Jesus Christ. He rose from the dead. He claims to have the keys of death. What do I do? And Peter's like, I got you. Here's a letter. And he funnels all of his instruction through a very similar form to that which Aristotle wrote, but he changes some things along the way. I call it the Roman remix. remixing patriarchy just a little bit with Jesus at the top instead. He says this. Submit to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors. Now what's he saying? You've noticed that I probably missed out a little bit there. We're gonna come back there. But what's he saying? He is saying if you wanna make a difference, cause a revolution without getting your head too far above the parapet so it'd be chopped off and not sort of shrinking back in a way that would make no difference. If you wanna make a real difference strategically for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the culture within which you find yourself, submit. Now here's the question. Is this something we can transplant and put into our culture? Is this something that therefore verifies and legitimates or legitimizes the institution and the rough leadership of Nero at the time? Here's what I wanna say, no, absolutely not. Peter assumes something here, but he doesn't actually endorse, therefore, the particular kind of leadership of Nero at the top. Peter's justification for submission isn't because Nero's a great guy and he rules with justice and he's doing the right thing. Peter's justification for submission is actually evangelistic. If you wanna make a difference in this world, if you wanna be able to have the opportunity to share the gospel, while at the same time, slowly but surely, sow the seeds of a different kind of world under King Jesus, keep your head down, don't stand out too much. Why? Well, you'll probably lose your life and the gospel seeds you want to sow will never get embedded in the soil of the culture in the first place. So just, you got time, it's gonna be okay. The primary goal here is that others in the leadership above you and the echelons of society below you might meet King Jesus themselves. But here's what I want you to notice. I want you to notice that Peter gives a surprising little qualifier here. He uses these words. It says, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as to the supreme authority or to the governors. What's he saying? He's saying that when Jesus Christ lived the life we should have lived, died the death we all deserve, was buried, raised again, ascended to the Father, and now is ruling from on high from his throne and called Lord, he is that in such a way that therefore Nero is not. See, think about this for a moment. Peter says in one sentence, submit to the authorities, the key of which is Nero, who's emperor and Lord, and then he uses another thing in that same sentence to identify someone else as Lord. See what he's doing? He's affirming not the institution but the person at the top with the goal of evangelism and in the meantime, completely subverting who actually is indeed Lord. Let me put it like this. If Caesar is Lord but Jesus is really king, then Caesar's kind of not. And if Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not, then who do you give your ultimate obedience to? This is literally the nuance of the New Testament. It changes the way we navigate our political society, our government, everything. Why? Because what he's saying is, if your conscience is clear and you have to obey the state, then go for it with all your might. Be an incredible citizen. You should make everyone else sort of feel shame because you, with such dignity and such heart, obey the state with all of your kindness, all of your conscience clear. But if ever there's a moment where the commands of Christ and the desires of Nero come into conflict, who are you gonna choose? Simple, who's the real Lord? Jesus Christ, risen, ruling, and reigning. In a sense, it's sort of like a passive way to acknowledge Jesus as Lord in the world that you didn't choose the rules of and you can't change the length of. But it's not just a passive thing Peter invites his followers and those in the church at the time to follow. There's something active he says, and he says these words. He says, for it is God's will, verse 15, that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. We've actually got letters from Roman historians at the time paying out Christians for being absolutely ridiculous, calling Christians atheists, calling Christians incestual, calling Christians a whole host of things which is not only historically untrue, but deeply offensive. And so what Peter says to them is, live the kind of lives that make those insults completely unfounded, and therefore makes those who insult you completely flabbergasted. Live such good lives that those who insult you would see themselves again afresh as foolish. Now, what's interesting here is what Peter means by good works. When I think of good works, I think of shouting my friend a coffee because they forgot their wallet. You know what I mean? You're at the cafe with a Christian brother, shout them a coffee, hey, I got this, you're good, $6 I'll never see again, no worries, inflation, thank you very much. Or, the other day I was crossing the street and this guy came up to me, and whenever someone comes up to me in the street, I'm just like, I have no idea how to brace myself. But we're at the street, literally across, just from, it's before church, and I'm like, all right, I'm about to pastor a church, about to preach, gonna have my best foot forward, be on my good behavior, do a good thing. And he comes up and he's like, hey, um, can you show me how to get here? And uh, I gave him some directions. He was looking for the bus station, sent him on his way. King George Square, right down there. You're welcome, cheers. Good work, good deed. That's what we think of when we think of good deeds. At least I do. I'm like, crushing it this week, shouted my friend a coffee, gave someone some instructions to the bus. Pastoring. <laughs> but that's personal and that's private. And what Peter has in mind here is, is public and, and civic. Now, at the time, Rome would suffer from earthquakes all the time and there'd be a host of things, most notably of which in the fire of 64 ID is a big fire. And when appealing to people to do good works, he's, some scholars think he's appealing to rich benefactors within, in, within the church to be the kinds of people that make investments into the civil life of the city, which is interesting. doesn't mean if you don't have money, you can't make a difference in the world, but it does mean historically what Peter could be referring to here is people making generous donations to the building of things, the restoring of things, the rebuilding of things, all this stuff, In such a way that the city, literally the buildings, the place, which feels really unspiritual, right? But the buildings, the place, the life, the the air, the vibe is changed because Christians say, well, actually, God's not going to burn this place up like we would fear the Rome fire would do. God's going to come back, make all things new, and through Christians who believe in Jesus, he's going to make a difference in this world here and Now, and so he appeals to people, do good works. In other words, here's the takeaway point from this first point, and who would have thought this is where we'd get to to apply it into our lives? The cities in which Christians live should be better because Christians are there. In 1989, uh, I want to call him a mentor, never met the guy, he's not alive now, but Tim Keller, he planted a church, conservative, for all intents and purposes, boring Church on the east side or west side of Central Park in New York. It's called Redeemer Presbyterian Church. 10 years later, at September 11, 2001, they had 5,000 people come through their doors, and when church growth people looked at their church, one of the questions they asked was, what are you doing that's different, such that in 10 years' time, you can have 5,000 people through your doors? And his answer was beautiful. I read his biography recently, and the biography summarized something of his own ministry philosophy for what impact the church could make in New York. And it had this beautiful thing to say to summarize what their desire as Christians in New York City would be. He said something like, we don't want our church to grow at the expense of the city. We want our city to flourish because of the church. I'll say that again. We don't want our church to grow at the expense of the city. We want our city to flourish because of the church. We want our mayor. We want our baristas. We want our hospital workers. We want the homeless on our streets. We want everyone that finds themselves at all different levels of social life better off because Christians are there. It's the renewal of all things. It's what Peter, the ultimate goal of what Peter's saying here in submission to authorities in that culture and the way it sort of leaks its way into our culture with this command is, man, this city should be changed for good and for God because of what we do here. No more holy huddles on a Sunday only. What does your Monday look like in the workplace? This is the beautiful application of one Peter. This is stunning stuff. In 1989, some stats were put forward about crime in New York City. You'll see them on the screen behind me. And crime and deaths in New York City were at an all-time high. They just kept trickling forward and growing and growing and growing. And then when Tim Keller moved to New York, planted this church, and people started to use their gifts for the glory of God and the good of the city, things started to change. Now, someone's going to come to me later and say, Alex, correlation does not equal causation. I don't care. This is awesome because this is their vision, whether what they did was directly related to this. But this is generally what they said. They said, we want crime to come down in this city. They looked for the pressure point in the city in which they gathered, and they said, we want to make a difference there. Imagine if we asked that question. Who would we be? What would this city become if we looked for the pressure point of pain and brokenness, and like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through our very lives, body, soul, and spirit, right into the intersection of it all, Live such good lies, that though people ridicule you, they might be fooled them. Ourselves. Don't take from the city. We need to give to the city. That's number one. Number two, slaves in reverent fear of God, verse 18, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Now, I think it was 2013, and the then Prime Minister of Australia was on Q&A, And one of the ways that he justified a particular moral equation was by looking to the Bible and saying, well, I wouldn't believe that because the Bible condones slavery, so why would I not try and update the Bible myself? And in one foul swoop, he insulted the Bible, sort of threw it away as God's word, and sort of suggested that the Bible, because it doesn't condemn slavery, perhaps it condones slavery. Does it? When we read this passage, and this is just me dealing with an objection here so we might hear afresh the words from Scripture itself, does the Bible condone slavery? Like, it's here, it seems black and white, it seems to assume slavery. Is that, therefore, an endorsement or a, um, of slavery? What's going on? Here's the first thing I'd say. Peter's assuming an institution, but that doesn't necessarily mean he's approving it. Given that Peter himself was a first-century man, he may well have approved it. But that's not because Peter's so morally aggressive. It's because Peter's anxious. This is pretty standard back in the day. But just because he's assuming something doesn't mean that he's approving it. And more than that, just because the biblical writers assume something doesn't mean that the Bible itself and the ultimate testimony of the scriptures therefore approve something. Number two, Peter's actually describing a real situation. One of the things we experience when we read the New Testament letters is it's sort of like a one-sided phone call. You know when you're listening to someone um, and they're talking to a friend, and you're like, I wonder what they're talking about? Are they angry? Are they glad? What's the other side of that phone conversation? The New Testament letters are literally that. We have no idea precisely what's going on in the people to whom Peter writes. We get glimpses and we sort of discern as we read through the letter. But it's most likely historically the case that there are slaves that Peter is writing to and this letter would get read out in public in their gathering in their home and they would be asking this question, what do I do? Particularly when the owner of me, the slave owner of me actually does beat me. He's assuming a actual historical situation, but that doesn't mean he's endorsing it either. He's trying to give instruction through it. Now we know this because Paul elsewhere would say something like this in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 21 and 22. I told you I'm gonna teach, here we go. He said, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person, but similarly, the one who is free when called is Christ's slave. What's he saying? He's actually given witness and testimony to the fact that, man, if the biblical writers could have it their way, slavery would be gone. Now, they could not imagine a world within which slavery wasn't necessary. The Roman Empire was built on it, and so they are now dealing with categories they've not got cultural potential for. You see that there, right? But why do we do this? Why do we come to the Bible, we hear this, and now our revolt within us is like, What's going on? And I think the answer is simple. There's a guy named Tom Holland, historian from the UK, and he, when looking at the way modern people reflect on the Bible with such disdain, such horror, such revolt, he had this to say. He said, Christianity defines the moral assumptions by and large of those who criticize it. Let me unpack that. The New Testament time and time again assumes household codes and funnels the teaching of Jesus into them and through them for the people of God. And as we read that as moderns, our heart goes, oh, how primitive, how backward, how wrong. But the larger Bible itself tells a story about the equality of all humanity and the liberty of all people such that slavery in the first century or chateau slavery in the 15th century or new world slavery in the Americas in the 18th century, all of it can be rightly called sin, not because we've got a text for it, but we've got a story within which the liberty of all people, the freedom of individuals, slave, Gentile, Jew, woman, man, all free, and the equality of all people. It's called the Imago Day, and it's called the Exodus story. Now, when the American colonies first started setting themselves up on the east, eastern seaboard of America, one of the things that pro slave owners did is they started to remove bits of the Bible. So they got rid of Genesis 1, which sort of suggests that all people, regardless of skin color, are made in the image and likeness of God and valued, therefore, with dignity and worth and worthy of honor. Got rid of that text. They got rid of the Exodus story, which is the story of God rescuing his people from the cruel and harsh rule of Pharaoh. They got rid of a whole host of the New Testament such that what was only left was texts like this with no context, no larger story. And it was actually the Christian Bible that inspired a whole host of evangelicals to lead the abolitionist movement in the 18th century. And there was a guy named Josiah Wedgwood who put together a little coin that literally proliferated all throughout the Western world at the time. And you'll see it on the screen behind me. And this is the question they asked. Based on the testimony of scripture, this unlocked the freedom of slavery and the dissolution of that institution in the 18th century. Am I not a man and a brother? Why do I bother with all this? I bother with this because we will not feel free to sit under the inspired word of God if we say, oh, Peter, doing your thing again. So what could Peter be saying? What could Peter be saying? In the ancient world, slavery was very different from what we know about it from the 15th and the later 18th centuries. In Roman society, slaves could own property, and they could own other slaves. They were not enslaved based on the color of their skin. It wasn't a racial institution. It was an imperial institution. Slavery is often temporary, and while there were certainly very degrading and dehumanizing forms of slavery, in the Roman world, many served actually in dignified positions. Some could research. Some could write. Some were artisans. Now, it's not saying it's good. It's just to say we should not import our 21st century Brokenness into the text and the world within which this was written. I've got a quote from a guy. I'm going to skip it. Ask me for my notes later if you want. But here's the thing. Different people had different experiences depended upon their master. So almost the institution of slavery is irrelevant for us understanding this text. We want to understand the particular master of the slave to whom Peter writes in this text. And in um, in this particular text, Peter is talking to someone who's living a good Christian life finds himself a slave, temporary, indefinite, who knows, and that slave master is beating them. Now, let's go back to our question. What do you do when you find yourself in a world and system you can't change? You didn't choose. If slaves ran away, they'd be killed, or they'd have to apprentice themselves to another different master. So that's not an option. If they rebelled, they'd be beaten, So that's not an option. Here's what Peter, in effect, says, and I'll read some more passage for us. He said, If you can be free, great, be free. If not, know that your suffering can be a witness to the glory of God. Now, we don't like that as Westerns, because we don't like suffering. But here's his words. He said, For it is commendable, verse 19, if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit? If you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called. Here's the big takeaway. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. What's Peter doing? He is dignifying suffering for the human person. He's saying, the other gods were weak, but the God who revealed himself in Jesus Christ was strong. All the other gods and rulers of this world, they rode, but our God stumbled to his throne and to our wounds and our suffering, actually the crucified God speaks and not a God has wounds or suffering, but actually Jesus Christ alone. So here's the question for you, what are you gonna do with your suffering? Suffering in the Christian life can be the greatest witness to the world, do you know that? Now I hate suffering, And I hate suffering like my wife and I just complain about such trivial things sometimes. Suffering's hard. And in this context, Peter is writing to someone who's suffering at the hands of unjust rulership. But what's the kind of suffering we experience in life? Probably not that. But some of us suffer unjustly, perhaps in a way that we think, oh, actually, I'm suffering in my body and that feels unjust. Or I'm suffering in work and I'm being ridiculed by colleagues and that itself feels unjust. I think the greatest kind of suffering we can experience in the modern world is with our bodies. Now, I'll qualify that another time, but genuinely, one of the ways in which we experience suffering is to take the body we assumed would work, find ourselves not being able to function, and just being either bedridden or broken and downcast, and and I would just say, if you find yourself in a moment where you're suffering, whether bodily or at the hands of some unjust ruler, which we're not there yet, but who knows where we're going as a culture, you can use your suffering as a witness for Jesus one person would actually say it like this, that the gospel is the greatest preparer for suffering in the life of a human. Do you know that? Now, there's a lady named Annie Johnston Flint. I didn't, I didn't find this story, an old preacher that I listened to told this story, but I find it so helpful in this context. Annie Johnston Flint, she had bed sores because she was stuck in bed all the time. She was suffering from cancer. Her sort of, uh, her diagnosis was grim, And she could have found herself as someone who complained, got bitter along the way, and just cried at the sky and said, this is unjust, I don't wanna be here, life sucks, and woe is me. But in the pain of her bed, sitting in a hospital that was lonely, she began to pen words and poetry and song, the result of which has become, I think, one of the most encouraging things for anyone who faces suffering in this world. And she said it like this, talking about her experience of God, he giveth more grace when the burdens go greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, he multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when the day is complete and may be half done, when we've reached the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. You ready for this? His love has no merit. His, his, his love has no ending. His grace has no merit. His power, no boundary known unto men. For out is infinite riches in Jesus. He giveth and giveth and giveth. Again, we're going to face suffering in this life, church. You know that. What are you going to do with it? How's it going to change you? Will it make you better or bitter? Will it make you resentful or refined? How will it change you? And the beautiful story of the Christian gospel is this, that the God we claim to follow and serve didn't stay distant in suffering, joined us with it, gave us a model for it, so now we can be a testament of his goodness in the world. I haven't even talked about wives and husbands yet. We're going to go over today. Is that okay? Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Now, here's what we do when we read this text. We take it and we sort of pretend that Peter's jumped up the precipice of the mountain, met with God and gone, how do you think marriage should work? And then we're like, oh, okay, so we've got this hierarchical structure and the guy's at the top and hopefully blah, blah, blah. And is that what Peter's doing here? Open question. We need to explore it. Let's jump in. Um, I want you to observe a few things in this passage. Number one, this is a household code. Remember that word we used before? This is a text that sits within the parameters of what philosophers had passed down through the generations for all people to understand the household, society, and the empire. And I want you to notice some of the differences, because here's what the New Testament writers do, Peter and Paul themselves. They take the structure of the household code and they start adding things in there that sort of alert you to the fact that things might be a little bit different here. So on the screen behind me, you'll see a way in which this sort of differs. The first thing I want to note is agency. When you read Aristotle's household code, it's usually directed to the man or to the public itself. The first person that Peter addresses within the household, actually it's not the first person, but the fact that he addresses someone in the first place, at all assumes this. I'm going to put a letter together that we read out in public and rather than it being funneled through the male of the household, I'm I'm going to speak it publicly to the female, which means she is restored as someone with agency. Do you see that there? In appealing to the wife itself in a way that's so culturally radical from the text that's been passed down from the philosophers, she is given agency. That is a game changer. People would have read this and been like, what is Peter smoking? This is completely revolutionary. First number one is agency. The second thing is motivation. You heard me before quote from Cicero. And Cicero's big thing is if we make sure the household is arranged well, then we can ensure that the civil service and the life of the city is arranged well, and therefore the empire is arranged well, and oh my gosh, we get to ensure the reign of Caesar or Nero and the rule of men through patriarchy. And so what does he do? What's different Every time he makes a household code statement, whether to the wife or to the husband or to the slave or anyone, it's always couched in this, for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. Which means the person at the top of the ladder is now no longer Caesar. And in fact, there's no longer a top of the ladder because he flips the script and puts himself at the very bottom. You'll see behind me, it's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ being the head of this new kingdom, the new Lord of the empire we call the Christian world. This is what Peter is doing, he's funneling through the household codes of ancient Rome and saying within there, actually, this is how we should arrange our civil life, Jesus at the top, and thereby, down to the very bottom, our lives in houses as well. So what's the point? What's the takeaway point? The takeaway point is this, Um, Beth Allison Barr, she studies medieval history, she lectures at Baylor University, and uh, she was one of two books I've been reading for a while now um, this isn't her book, but she writes the foreword in this book, a book uh, by a guy named Nije Gupta, a New Testament scholar in Chicago. It's called Tell Her Story. It's one of the most helpful and accessible downloads of the kind of stuff that I've been talking about this afternoon as we've journeyed through 1 Peter. I'd recommend that to you. But Beth Allison Barr, she writes this, a historian. She says, Patriarchy exists in the Bible because the Bible was written in a patriarchal world. There's nothing surprising about passages riddled with patriarchal attitudes and actions. What is surprising is how many passages undermine rather than support patriarchy. Now, I bet we're all begging to understand, therefore, what do I do with all the other passages? That's why we've got a Q&A next week, friends. Join us there. And we'd love to unpack things like Ephesians 5 or Colossians 3 or 1 Timothy 2, which seems to suggest that perhaps that is the way to understand the household. I'm personally not convinced of that. The beauty of our church is you're not asked to make a decision. You can arrange your household how you want, as you see fit, as you interpret the scriptures. What does unite us all though is each of us believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, and our joy is to sit under it, shape our lives and indeed our families from it and through it. So what's Peter saying then? You still with me? We doing okay? Good. Two more brief points and then we're done. What is Peter saying? I think he's giving us a demonstration of what you might call the first flirt to convert in Christian history. Here you've got, a non, you've, got a, you've got a wife who's become a Christian, and you've got a male who themselves are not Christian. And she's told this man the gospel again and again and again. That's assumed by this text. He says, let me just read it actually. If any of them do not believe the word, I'm assuming you've, you've shared it, they may be won over without words by the behavior of your lives. So what's Peter doing here? Well, getting really historical, really particular. He's saying, you've preached the gospel to your unbelieving husband and you've preached it again and you've preached it again. Now you've heard people say things like, um, I think it was St. Francis of Assisi who said something like, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. That's actually not a biblical ideal. The the gospel is a message. We've got to talk about it. But here you have Peter saying, he's heard it. So stop nagging him with words. Exceed your words. Nearly fell there. Exceed your words with your life. Christian wife. Non-Christian husband. Instruction funneled through an ancient Greco-Roman household code. Here's the takeaway point really simple actually don't lose hope on your unbelieving husband coming to faith he's not beyond the reach of the gospel try something else it could work that's what Peter's saying now the reason I find this profound is because sure we'll talk about marriage sure we'll do alpha marriage we'll set people up to have a win in their, not just on their wedding day but their actual lives but I love that this passage boils down to this is there someone in your life possibly close to you that you've been contending for for a long time that, no, that doesn't know the Lord? And Peter would say, what else can you try? Maybe try your very life. Now, here's why I find this encouraging. I find this encouraging because I think there's all people we've discounted from the kingdom of God, people for whom we've said they're no for them, people that just are so far from God, we can't imagine them coming to faith, and we just say, ah, oh, I'm not gonna bother anymore, I'm gonna stop praying for them. But then I'm reminded of the story of a guy named Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel, him and his wife weren't Christians. His wife came to faith. He was an investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune. And when his wife came to faith, he couldn't hack it. And he was just like, this sucks. I don't like this. Not good. But he said, if Jesus is real, I'm an investigative journalist. I'm going to research it. So he puts his mind to work, his pen to paper, and he starts researching. Is Jesus real? Is he who he claimed he was? Did he rise from the dead? Could he be God? Is this true? And at the age of 29, he ended up giving his life to God because he said, gosh, there's too much evidence for this. Now, what would have happened if his wife stopped praying for him? What would have happened if she stopped going beyond her words with her very life and she stopped just caring? I don't know. But I like the possibility that actually she continued in faith, she continued to contend, and she continued not to say her husband's no for her, but in her very life with her words and her deed, preached the gospel at all times. So here's my question for us as a church as we finish. Who are you praying for? Like, who is it in your life? They could be your spouse. Which means if I invite us forward to receive prayer and your spouse is with you, we just gotta own that awkwardness. You know what I'm saying? That could get weird. But I'm here for it. Why? Because there's a new king in town. His name's Jesus. He's way better than Nero, and he's way more forgiving and loving than all the things that we give the ultimate place of throne and authority in our lives. He's incredible. He's incredible. He's the best king I've ever met, the most gracious saviour I've ever experienced. He's kinder to me than I am to myself. This is the story. All of us, not simply wives, have someone we think is beyond God's grace. And Peter would say, what else can you try? What else can you try? Go beyond your words. How's our feeling towards walking through the last part, weaker vessel? Do we want to go there just briefly? This is really easy. This is not easy. I shouldn't say that. Um... I genuinely regret saying that. Um, (laughs) Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Now, as we walk into this, I realize this whole thing's been dense. I want to start to land the plane now and I actually want us to start to get our hearts ready. Um, I was chatting with someone the other day. This is a side note. So text over there, we're here. So I was chatting with someone the other day and um, what did they say? Oh, they said, do you leave room in... Oh, yeah, I was out with friends. And oh, do you leave room in, in your service for the spirit to move? And as we were discussing, we would, it sort of became clear that that question assumes something like, how spontaneous are you? To which I said, actually, we're pretty spontaneous. It's going really good. Um, and we started to ask, well, what qualifies as prophecy? Is it that the pastor gets up and has a particular word at a particular moment and with no context can be like you there in the back row? Or could it also be possible that with the minds that God's given us to use as we apprentice under Jesus and walk forward with the scriptures that perhaps in my study this week, there could be something prophetic in the word that I'm sharing right now. And so I'm about to talk to what the ancients called the weaker vessel of the female, a social, physical, financial assumption of the ancients. Please don't let that rob you of preparing your heart to respond to God however he's touched your heart in this time. Is that okay? Awesome. All right. The weaker vessels. Um, A few ways to translate this. One is weaker partner. The word used for vessel is interestingly used in Romans about the pottery and the jar and the clay. It's used in Luke's gospel to talk about different members of a family and body parts on a human. And so it's just a generic term that sort of is a, a, a placeholder for something. And so Peter here likens women to weaker vessels. Now, why would he do that? Well, he would do that because both in the assumptions of the ancients and in the hierarchy and the social structure of the day, they just were. Now, that's why I said before this is easy. It's, it's not easy. This is hard to digest, but it's really simple to understand. In the ancient world, women were just at the bottom of the rung. We saw it before. And the assumption of the day, therefore, was that they were the weaker vessel, that they were the one who were... in. Craig Keener's words, he's a New Testament scholar out of Asbury Theological Seminary, he translates this as the vulnerable partner. Which is such helpful language, because what's surprising about this, not in the ancient mind, what's surprising about this, in the ancient mind, let me just do this, in the ancient mind, this is not surprising. It's like, yeah, bro, weaker vessel, straight up, got you, that's fine. What's surprising (laughs) is that he says to the husbands, who've got the right of life, who've got the power in the home, who've got the pater familias in the Roman Latin terms. Do what you want with your wife. She's your property. But Peter says, be considerate. She's vulnerable. In this society that we live in, she's actually at risk. You've got a job. Take care of her. Love her. Protect her. Ensure that she is safe. I think it's beautiful. And the beauty of it is not that that comes because the man finds himself in a particular position at all times, in all places, in all ways. It's just a wonderful way for Peter to ensure that the people that find themselves at the bottom of the rung are taken care of. Ensure that those who are vulnerable are one to good life and experience safety and care. And here's why I think this is the case, because the two things that Peter finishes with and the two things that I'm gonna finish with are these two words, equality, and punishment. He says, as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, pause there for a moment, the gracious gift of life, the heirs, the inheritance, would typically go to the male in the family, typically to the oldest son, he'd get more of the portion, the other one would get less, females wouldn't get any. And he says, actually, your wife that you've covenanted with, she's gonna be an equal sharer in the gracious gift of life. Fundamentally brings inequality into the midst. And then I love this even more. He says, and God will stop listening to you if you don't do this. Here's what he said. He said these words. He said, God, actually, I'll paraphrase it there. Let me quote from Peter. Last thing I'll do. He says, as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. What's he saying? He's saying the God who's made himself perpetually available to us in Christ, the one who's got ears to hear the prayers we pray, who delights when we come into his throne with, with boldness and confidence and pray our prayers. The only time in the New Testament that that is brought at risk of is when husbands, in the first century, in the church to whom Peter writes, don't take care of the most vulnerable person in their midst. And I just think that's badass, you know? I think it's flippin' awesome. That'd inspire me to pray. So why do I say all this? I say all this because right now we've just read a text that takes the household codes, and as I begin to speak, why doesn't the band come up and join me? Um, We okay if church goes a bit over today? I think, I think we need a worship, actually, just a bit after this. So we'll just keep going. And um, Dinner's not ready yet, so we're, we're good. But um, the New Testament writers, they take the ancient household codes, which are not only assumed by the ancient world, but celebrated. And then they begin to write to little communities dotted around the ancient empire, assuming the structure, but threading through this wonderful seed and the seed is Galatians 3:28. There's neither no, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. you're all one in Christ Jesus. And as they sow that seed, he gives it to communities to whom he also communicates at the same time. Wouldn't it be wonderful if all those around whom you find yourself met the risen, ruling, reigning king? He's way better than Caesar, way better than Nero. And those seeds, over time, grow up to become full flourishing flowers the likes of which bear the culture we now find ourselves in that as we look back at this text, we're like, oh, it's a that's hard to read. And here's the beauty. We are now the flowers. It's called the Church of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our king. We have leadership, sure, but we're actually all one and equal, all at the same time. We shun and despise abusive and authoritarian hierarchical Abusive leadership. But we also don't shy away from it when it's healthy and good. And then at the same time, we don't let the structures within which we organize ourselves dictate the value of those who find out themselves in our midst. That's why I love that sure, I'll preach one week, someone else will preach another week, and someone else will share a prophetic word, and all of it ministers to God's people as we find ourselves in his kingdom. And so I don't know what you've taken from this sermon. I don't even remember what I've communicated. But I know we each get to take something of what God's deposited through His Word in our lives right now, respond to Him in worship, and let it shape our Monday through to Friday for His glory, the good of the world, and our joy. So why don't you stand? Uh, I've grown partial to letting one song play and then coming up to do response. I'm just let's just go there. Let's not wait for the right song or the bridge in the right song to respond. There's two things I want to pray for. If you've got someone close to you in your life that you've given up on praying for, come and receive prayer and let the Holy Spirit light a fire in you again. If you want to kneel in isolation, just come and kneel. If you'd like to receive prayer, they'll be on my right and left. They'll pray for you, they'll have white lanyards on. If you're married and would love a blessing on your marriage this afternoon, or you're dating and would love a blessing, or you're engaged and would love a blessing, someone just partner with the Spirit in what you're doing in the season you're in, just come receive prayer. Again, my right and my left. But for any of us here who walked into church just as I was speaking and thought, man, this is a bit more dense than I expected it to be, but you've talked about a King named Jesus who might be alive and maybe is speaking to me. I just wanna give an opportunity for you to respond right now. And we respond in stepping into a relationship with Jesus simply by saying, God, I'm sorry for living my life separate from you. Thank you for dying the death I deserved and living the life that I should have lived. Help me follow you. So can I just ask everyone in the room to close their eyes? And if you would like to step into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ right now, why don't you just raise your hand? I'd love to pray with you. Nice and high so I can see. Just leave this open just for one more minute. Awesome, awesome. Well, if you are in the room and you've not raised your hand, but the Spirit's doing something in you, I want you to just ask the Spirit, just quietly as we step into worship, Father, show me your glory. Reveal to me what you want me to see friends on this day let's worship together thanks again for listening to the new life podcast if that stirred something within you or you'd like prayer you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our instagram or our facebook page we pray that you have a great week be blessed